Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Calling for change, the brother of George Floyd testifying on police form. Taking action, corporate America's continued response to the protests and the Fed's forecasts, the central bank's first outlook since the coronavirus crisis began. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be back with you. It's been a truly momentous few weeks here in the United States and around the world with hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets, demanding social change following the death of George Floyd. We've also had significant economic news too, culminating in Friday's surprisingly strong but ultimately inconclusive read on the U.S. jobs market, though investors weren't deterred. Take a look at this. That data sparking big stock market gains on Friday and Monday. Stocks pausing a little bit yesterday, but it's looking like a higher open today once again ahead of the Federal Reserve's policy update. Just to give you a marker, the Nasdaq crossing the 10,000 milestone for the first time ever yesterday. The S&P 500 also back in the green for the year. The overall trend has been higher amid the expectation, I think, that if the situation is bad, then the Federal Reserve and Jay Powell will step in to help once again. And then if reopenings are successful and without a dramatic rise in COVID cases, then it's good news anyway. So there's a backstop there on both sides. It's an interesting one. In Asia, new numbers show Chinese wholesale prices falling more than 3.5% last month, fueling concerns about a slower recovery there. The path is by no means straight. The OECD warning today that it will take global economies at least two years to fully recover. But here in the United States, the speed and the strength of recovery remains a big unknown too. Yes, two and a half million jobs were added to U.S. payrolls in May, but that still leaves more than 20 million Americans officially unemployed. And as protests against racial inequality continue to cry out for change, unemployment among African-Americans sits at over 16.5%. That's triple what it was four months ago when it hit record lows. Let's get right to the drivers. Plenty to discuss in the next hour. Testimony on Capitol Hill from the brother of George Floyd. Just a day after Floyd's family and friends gathered in Houston for his funeral, the demands for justice and greater equality were echoed across the country, with protesters taking to the streets for another day. All this as lawmakers now consider proposals for overhauling policing and tackling racism. Manu Raju joins us now from Washington. Manu, great to have you with us. George Floyd's brother, not the only testimony that we'll hear today, but certainly likely to be the most emotive. What can we expect Yeah, we expect this to be a pretty emotional hearing before the House Judiciary Committee when George Floyd's brother, Philanoise Floyd, uh, takes to the mics, explains what happened, uh, and takes questions from lawmakers. But he's not the only one uh, who will be testifying. Other witnesses will offer their perspective on what needs to be changed, civil rights activists, people from the law enforcement community, people who the Republicans uh, have invited as well. And essentially what this will do was this will lay the groundwork for the legislative debate to come. We expect that to happen 
happen pretty quickly in the House of Representatives. We expect a vote in the House Judiciary Committee on the Democrats' bill to try to overhaul policing in this in the United States, have a vote in that committee as soon as next week, and the full U.S. House is expected to vote to approve that plan uh, by the end of the month. Now, that's much, but they'll have to reconcile their differences with Republicans in the Senate who are taking a different approach. Republicans initially had said that they wanted to leave a lot of these issues to the local government. Government, but facing pressure and facing the unrest here in the United States, there is now a push to try to do something on the national level. So the Republicans are putting together their proposal uh, that includes a number of measures, but they differ from Democrats. For instance, the Democrats want to ban certain police tactics like chokeholds. Uh, that is not in the Republican plan. The Democratic plan is more aggressive about the mandate of the use of body cameras on and law enforcement officers, uh, the Republicans encourage that use. The Democrats try to have a national registry to track police misconduct across the country. The Republicans try to push that on the state level. So there are a number of major differences that they'd still have to sort out. But Congress is moving, and in just over two weeks' time, since the death of George Floyd, we're seeing uh, an effort to try to reconcile uh, what happened there to the, what people believe needs to be changed uh, on the ground in these police departments. So perhaps they can get a deal. There's still work to come. And today's hearing will kick off, kick off that process, Julia. It's incredible, though, that just in the space of two weeks, we're even having this discussion, even given the differences of the Democrats and the Republicans on what reform might ultimately look like. The shift in Congress, the shift in public opinion, consensus now is for reform of some kind. I, I think we have to underline how pivotal this moment is. Yeah, no, no question about it. This was not on the agenda of Congress just a few weeks ago when the Congress was consumed with how to deal with the coronavirus crisis and whether or not to move on another recovery package. Now uh, this is on the forefront of Congress's agenda and Democrats moved to put together their major proposal that has the support of more than 200 of their members. And as I mentioned, the Republicans, this was not, as of last week, did not think that they needed to do a bill on the national level, but now they believe they do because, as you mentioned, the polls overwhelmingly show voters do want some change. They're concerned about what's happening here. And of course, we're in an election year where members of Congress are more receptive to the concerns being raised by the electorate. So perhaps they can come to a resolution. Still some a ways to go to get there. But clearly, the discussion has changed in Washington since George Floyd's death. Julia. Absolutely. And that testimony beginning in the next hour. Money, great to have you with us. Money, we'll read you there. Talking of uh, massive shifts, corporate America responding to the call from the Black Lives Matter movement with actions as well as words. Adidas is committed to hiring black or Latinx workers in at least 30 percent of its new U.S. roles. Meanwhile, HBO Max has withdrawn Gone with the Wind from its library and Paramount Network has canceled the long running reality show Cops. Brian Stelter joins us now. Brian, actions speak louder than words. I have to say there's still deep skepticism about corporate America's commitment to addressing racial inequality at this moment. But steps like this from Adidas show something, again, pretty pivotal that we're seeing. Brian, can you hear me? No, I don't think he can hear me. Okay, we'll move on and we'll see if we can um, we can get Brian back up in a few minutes' time for now. 
And I've mentioned it already later today. The Federal Reserve is expected to release its first set of economic forecasts for 2020 after skipping the quarterly summary that it normally gives in March. Fetcher J. Powell will speak after he and his policymakers wrap up their two-day meeting. Christine Romans joins me now. Christine, it's an interesting time, of course, because Jay Powell has come out several times in the last few weeks, and you and I have discussed it plenty of times, reiterating the need for more support. But there was some suggestion after that jobs report that we got on Friday that perhaps if we do add back these jobs very quickly, then perhaps at least as far as the Federal Reserve is concerned, their work's done. What do we think today? You know, I think with that jobs report is so interesting because when you look at um, the state and local government jobs, there were big job loss there. And that's been one of the points that Jay Powell has been making, I think, when he's talking to Congress and sort of saying, hey, there's more work that you might have to do. That could very well, well be the state and local aid piece of this. Uh, you can't you, you've had these these state budgets just cratering here. So that's going to be sort of the second wave of crisis here once the uh, once the pandemic uh, initial pandemic and reopening is addressed. So We'll be looking to see if he says anything about that. And really, you know, we're on pins and needles for whether he's committed to using all the policy tools that, that they're, at their, in their arsenal or strongly committed. It could be just one or two uh, different words that could change the direction of, of investors here today. So really watching closely, especially on a day you mentioned the OECD said it could take two years for the global economy to recover from this. And this is the worst global recession in peacetime in 100 years. So you have that split screen of all these hopes for a V-shaped recovery and maybe an end to stimulus. And then the reality that we still have a lot of work to do. And of course, as you point out so correctly, we analyze every single word and the phrasing (laughs) of all the sentences and any hint that he can be a little bit more optimistic here in light of what we're seeing in terms of reopening will be seen as a negative, I think, by investors that suddenly, oh, maybe the support's going to be lessened in some way or he's not quite as there as he was before. Investors at this moment feel like they've got all bases covered. If it's bad, Jay Powell will provide further support. If it's good, it's great anyway. And here we are with the Nasdaq making record highs. It's astonishing. It is. And you look at where the markets have come just since the March lows. And I mean, aren't they priced for perfection and they're priced for the trillions of dollars of stimulus they've seen both from Congress and and the Fed? So, you know, there are those who get a little nervous here that any kind of a hint of bad news and maybe, you know, stalling in Congress, especially over the state and local budget stuff uh, or bailout stuff, you know, could could make this market a little bit toppy. But anybody who's been worried about a toppy market over the past three or four weeks has lost money. (laughs) Yeah, and this is a critical point as well. Judging what happens next, are valuations too high? Can they support the valuations given the sheer quantity of liquidity that's sloshing around? I've seen some charts that are so astonishing in terms of the number of cash out there. It it sort of justifies inexplicable valuations for equities because there's no real judgment allowed anymore or provided. I wonder what you think, Julia, what percentage of this rally in the stock market is the Fed's bond buying and and the Fed alone Mm. and Fed liquidity alone? I mean, it might be an unknowable uh, it might be an unknowable number here, but uh, certainly support from the Fed is one reason why the stock market has been able to rally so well, which makes Chairman Powell's comments today that much more riveting for all of us who follow Fed speak. Yes, riveting. We are geeks. Christine Rose. <laughs> Thank you so much for that. All right. I do believe Brian is now back with us. Brian, can you hear me? 
I hear you. I'm sorry about that, Julia. No, no, it's not. Sorry, it's good. It's, it's live TV. That's what happens. We were discussing, and I introduced the fact that Adidas has come out now and said, look, at least 30% of our new hiring in North America is going to be targeted towards African-Americans to Latinx workers. That's a pretty bold statement, even if we don't know what their current ethnic mix of workers is. And one would suggest it's lower than they'd like. Yes. All of this is people power in action. From the New York Times sacking its op-ed editor uh, to the Philadelphia Inquirer having its top editor resign, uh, to Harper's Bazaar naming a person of color as its magazine editor for the first time, to this superhero show on the CW firing one of its actors. There are all of these changes in the media world that are, that are related, and then in the broader business world that are all part of the same thing. It's this incredible influence of people power, kind of the, 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 the influence of advocacy groups, of rank and file employees, of customers, all these companies want to make sure that they are standing on the right side of history. And it seems like, you know, customers aren't willing to wait around any longer and employees aren't willing to wait around for change any longer. It's interesting. I was looking at a survey by Elderman, the, the public relations company. They do this trust survey and their latest says 60 percent of Americans would now boycott or buy from a brand based on its response to George Floyd's killing. Mm. Fascinating to see the dramatic shift, I think, in public opinion and having a response, whether it's in Congress, whether it's a response from businesses here. But at the same time, and I mentioned it already, there's deep skepticism, I think, about how far this extends to corporate boards, whether it means higher yeah. wages for some of the lowest earners. What do you think, Brian? Is this moment that pivotal that we see that kind of change or is more required? And will it still be part of the conversation in the same way months from now right. when decisions like about boards are made? I think this is the kind of thing where it's like water coming up against a wall. Like water has been coming up against the wall for years and years. Finally, the wall bursts. Finally, the dam bursts. And it's partly uh, because of the news cycle, partly because of the, the horror of the George Floyd video, and partly because advocacy uh, activists have been working up to this point for many years. You know, uh, look at, um, you know, for example, Paramount Network, a small cable channel, said yesterday they're not going to air the show Cops anymore. Cops is a legendary reality show, but it was long in the tooth. It played into outdated stereotypes about policing. And advocacy groups have been calling for five years to get rid of the show Cops. But it took this moment for the network to actually do it. So it, that's what I mean by the water. Finally, for so long, up against this dam, and now it's bursting. Yeah, and coronavirus, of course, revealing the financial inequalities in the United States and the vulnerabilities. Um, all contributing factors, I think. Here, all Brian. contributing, Great. yeah. Yeah. Brian, great to have you with us. Thank you uh, for your perspective, as always. Right now, the latest global snapshot of the coronavirus pandemic. According to John Hopkins University, there have been now been 7.2 million confirmed cases. More than 400,000 people have lost their lives. In the United States, with more easing of restrictions and businesses reopening, as well as people gathering to protests, we are seeing higher infection rates in almost half of U.S. states. Senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen is with us. Elizabeth, great to, um, great to get you on the show. What is your perspective on what we're seeing? Because when I look at the caseloads, it comes back to the idea of, look, but we're testing more and we're increasing to test, increasingly testing. But at the same time, if you look at people getting back together, videos on social media of group gatherings and people not wearing masks, 
a lot of people think that caseload should be higher. What is the real story here? The real story here is that there are so many factors involved. As Mm. you mentioned, the more you test, the more cases you find, and that certainly uh, can be at play. And certainly some parts of the U.S. are testing more than other parts. But also, it's very simple. The country has opened up in the past you know month or so and the more you get people together the more you're going to get the spread of the of the coronavirus now people have pointed to the protests and certainly that may be one part of it but we're seeing people getting together in other ways as well over memorial day weekend which was a few weeks ago we certainly saw gatherings at beaches and other kinds of parties there were graduation parties uh, which led to outbreaks of coronavirus so in the beginning when we were careful the numbers responded as you would expect when you're less careful and people are getting together more especially if you don't take precautions such as masks or any kind of social distancing you're going to see the numbers come up it really is that simple and one quick question elizabeth too on the silent spreaders the asymptomatic individuals who have covid19 the world health organization causing some deep confusion about how dangerous these people are and whether or not we need to be wearing masks ultimately what's the real deal here because dr fauci right, had this I- morning refuting Yes, several infectious disease experts that I've talked to said they were scratching their heads when the WHO made their announcement on Monday and then their clarification on Tuesday, which sort of kind of helped, but not really. The bottom line is that it is clear there is lots of evidence at this point that this virus can be spread by people who don't have symptoms. The WHO got very caught up in whether they truly didn't have symptoms. Maybe they had a little bit of symptoms and they didn't notice it. Or maybe they weren't asymptomatic cases per se because they were pre-symptomatic. They didn't have symptoms, but then a few days later, they did develop symptoms. In a way, who cares? It doesn't matter for the person who catches, who is on the receiving end, if that infection. If you run into an old friend on the street, you give him a hug, they seem perfectly fine, and then you get sick, it's because they were infected at that time and didn't realize it. It doesn't matter if they were mildly symptomatic. It doesn't matter if they were asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. The bottom line is they felt well enough to be out and about. They didn't realize they had coronavirus and they got you sick. This is real. This is happening in a significant number of cases. Uh, this has been estimated by the CDC and others as being real and significant. We need to pay attention. That's why the WHO said wear masks. The only reason you're going to wear a mask is because you might be um, contagious without realizing it. So the WHO really managed to muck things up here. Yes, I was going to say the bottom bottom line is just wear a mask. It's about protecting others. Right. Right. Elizabeth Cohn, thank you for that. Great to have you with us. Thanks. All right, still to come on First Move, leveling the playing field for black and minority American workers. President Obama's former social secretary, who's now CEO of the Black Opal Beauty brand, joins us to discuss how. And the changing face of COVID-19, an ER doctor talks to first move about the latest coronavirus science. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where we're still looking for a higher open for U.S. stock markets. Tech is set to outperform after the Nasdaq crossed the 10,000 milestone for the very first time in yesterday's trading session. Professional investors warning 
here that stocks are at their most expensive level in years. That said, retail investors continue to pour money into beaten down sectors, capitalizing on hopes for a strong economic rebound, lifting some of the cheaper stocks. Confidence in the Federal Reserve, as I've already mentioned, has helped fuel the market rise too. The central bank releasing new economic forecasts later today. The Fed's policy statement coming just two days after officials said the U.S. entered recession back in February, ending 128 months of uninterrupted growth. Let's talk this through. Joining us now, uh, Greg Vallier, he's chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, great to have you with us. Plenty of head scratching, I think, uh, given the level of uh, stock markets at this moment. If you look at the risks that remain out there and the unknowns. You've got to think, Julia, that Fed Chairman Powell knows that the risks are downside risks uh, Mm. with uh, more and more cases of COVID-19. You were just reporting about that with uh, perhaps a fluky unemployment number last Friday. I mean, I think the risks are still downside risks. And I think the the main task today for Jerome Powell is to persuade or beg Congress to do more. Congress hasn't done enough. There's got to be another bill. Some people are getting cold feet, but I think Powell will be quite adamant that we need more medicine. So he sticks to the line that he's given over the last several weeks that to your point, more support is needed. The Fed stands ready and Congress has to do more. What is the Washington consensus at this point on COVID-19? I think the feeling is that we've got cavalier, that we maybe got a little too self-congratulatory, you know, mission accomplished. And uh, there are so many areas in the country where people did not do the distancing, wear the masks, and now we've got a real problem on our hands. And I think this could be a disincentive for Americans to go to restaurants, to go to malls, uh, to, to get out, because this clearly is not over yet. You said it's a fluky, potentially, jobs report. You're less convinced, perhaps, than others. There was some disagreement over what the unemployment rate is ultimately and how you quantify who's unemployed in the United States. But two and a half million jobs added back sooner than thought. We can't escape that. Uh, Absolutely. That that was quite encouraging. I'm not quite sure we're at 13.6%. I think uh, the Bureau of Labor Statistics feels it probably is higher. But it's we're going in the right direction. Uh, things are getting better. But I, I do worry, just to make an analogy, if we, you have an infection and only take half of your antibiotics and don't take the rest, the infection could come back. And I think you have to take the medicine until it runs out and there's a need for more medicine. No room for complacency. I agree with you on that. It's been a remarkable 14 days, I think, of protests, debate over racial inequality. We were talking over earlier in the show about the dramatic shift in discussion in Congress, but also in public Mm -hmm. opinion that reform, police reform now is the consensus opinion. What does action look like, Greg, on this? Well, first of all, Julia, you've got all these young people, black and white, uh, wanting reform. The country's attitudes have changed dramatically. We are going to get a bill. I think the Democrats and Republicans can come together. I think to a certain extent, Trump might be 
irrelevant in all of this. Uh, he's not going to uh, show a deep understanding. He doesn't show any empathy. And I think Republicans know there's got to be a bill. I do not see defunding the police. I think Biden and other leaders of the Democrats party feel that's not a, a, a wise thing to do. But I, I do see uh, dramatic changes. And the most dramatic change of all will be an African-American running mate for Joe Biden. I think it's probably 90% that she will be African-American. Yeah, I mean, there's so many points in there, Greg. And I think already Joe Biden making that distinction between reform and defunding. No moderate wants to see less police presence. It's just about making it work better for everybody in, in society. To your point, then, we see Joe Biden choose a black, probably female vice president. Trump's irrelevant to this debate because he sort of missed the boat on it and manhandles it when he does speak about it. How do you see the interplay between Joe Biden and Donald Trump as we go through the next few months? Because you did make a quite pointed comment that we've seen the high watermark for the strength of support for Joe Biden relative to Donald Trump this week. Well, the CNN poll showed Biden ahead by 14. That's a lot. I think most polls show Biden ahead by 8, 9, 10, something like that. I'm not sure Biden can get much higher than 14%. However, if he's wise with his choice, let's say he picks the mayor of Atlanta, uh, Keisha Bottoms, who I think would be a first-rate candidate. Well, Georgia has 16 electoral college votes, and I think she could help with turnout. I think she would help around the country. Obviously, Kamala Harris and Val Demings could help as well. So I, I think Biden could get an extra point or two out of a running mate. But I, I have to would I would be a little bit worried for the Democrats if they think Biden's going to win by 14. I think that's a bit high. Yeah, he doesn't need to win by that. <laughs> Greg Valier, no, it's not. Great, to, yeah, great to have you with us. Uh, fantastic to have you on, as always. Stay well, sir. Nice to Valier see you. Yep, bye. Nice to see you, too. All right, and we're counting down for the market open this morning. Stay with us. That's next. To first move, the U.S. stocks are open for trading this Wednesday. And as expected, we've got a mostly higher open across the board here. One of the major market stories of the year has been strength in big tech. Well, that continues. The Nasdaq trading above the 10,000 milestone for a second day as Apple and Amazon hit fresh record highs. Evidence, meanwhile, of pent-up demand from global consumers also helping fuel the market sentiment here. Macy's says it's reopened stores are performing better than expected. Air travel is also coming back too. American Airlines says it will fly 55% of its domestic schedule and almost 20% of its international routes next month. That said, a new CNN poll shows less than half of Americans say they would feel comfortable returning to their old routines at this moment in time. Interesting. Around, in around half an hour, the brother of George Floyd will testify before Congress. Lawmakers are hearing proposals on changing the way policing is run in the United States. It comes just one day after Floyd's friends and family gathered in Houston to pay their final respects and demand a fairer America. We will be covering that and we'll bring that to you the moment the hearing starts. But it's not just the judicial system that needs to change to bring real equality. The wealth gap between black and white America is staggering. 
the poverty rate among black Americans is double that of whites. And on average, white households have 10 times the net worth of black households. That's the result of inequalities in education, opportunity and investment. Joining us now is Desiree Rogers, the CEO of Black Opal Beauty and former social secretary at the White House under President Obama. Desiree, great to have you on the show. Some staggering statistics there, I think highlighting not only the need, and we're hearing people talking about this on a daily basis, of judicial reform, but also things like education reform, investment reform, support for small business too. What's your stance today? And are we seeing a movement for real change? You know, I certainly hope so. I mean, in front of the whole world, we saw George Floyd murdered. But the dreams and the aspirations of black people here in America have been murdered for centuries. And so I am hopeful that this will be the turning point where we start to make some real progress. I mean, we know that due to uh, the virus, that people had to stand still for a while. It was the great equalizer in many ways, but in many ways it was not an equalizer because here in America, as you may know, the rate of death among um, African Americans and minorities was much higher because we couldn't stand still because we really were the ones that, that people on the front, front line caring for people every day, whether it be bus drivers, service workers, restaurant workers, hospital workers, orderlies. I mean, we had to get out there and work. And you mentioned earlier the great divide in terms of wealth. And, you know, that's just a fact. And so why is that? It has to be the underlying, um, the underlying kind of sin of America, which is racism. What policy responses do you want to see to tackle that? Because to your point, I think COVID-19 revealed something that was an existing problem. And it's been an existing problem for a really long time about the underlying inequalities in the United States. What policy response is required now to tackle some of these issues? Well, there's seven different areas, several different areas that we have to confront. I mean, I believe as a small business owner, you know, one of the things we had what was called PPP here, and that was a loan programs uh, for small businesses. But we know that 95% of black owned companies weren't able to get access to that money. Or if they were, they knew that it wouldn't work for them because part of the forgiveness of the money was hiring people. How can you hire people if you can't pay your rent or buy food for your restaurant or all the other things that are required for small business? We also know that 40% of black-owned businesses, businesses and about 35% of businesses in the Latino market have been shut down by COVID. And so, um, you know, how did those businesses come back? Where's the government investment? Where's the federal investment, local investment? And so we have got to invest in these small, small businesses across uh, this nation. And we know that money coming from those businesses regenerates back into that community you get more activity from other businesses uh, locating there. Um, a big issue here is bank loans, just getting access to capital to grow your business. So you got to make certain that, you know, there's some accountability in terms of what these banks are doing and how they're lending their money. I mean, just like there are all kinds of um, uh, uh, rewards, you know, in compensation, et cetera, for making your, your net income numbers or your profits, we need that for diversity and inclusion. We need that as a measure for CEOs that are running these large companies. You know, that's what we need. Talk is cheap. 
you know, and giving donations. And we, we love that. That's great. But we've got to invest in this community, education, health care, wellness, you know, the ability to access capital and the ability to really be able to grow our businesses. Adidas came out and said that fresh hiring in the United States, 30 percent now at least will be African-American, will be from the Latinx worker pool. Is that the kind of response that you want to see? We love that. Let's see it. I mean, we need uh, employment across the board, not just in the lower level jobs, but some of the higher ranking jobs. If you look across America and our corporations, it is not reflective of the population um, across this nation. And so if you look at the major CEOs of the Fortune 500, they're, you know, we don't exist. Very few of us exist. You look across the, the boards of these large corporations in America. We're not in the boardroom. This is where the decisions are made. You know, you look at the executive leadership committee. We're not there. And so there's just a sprinkling, a sprinkling of us. And there should just be many more of us in those positions to really be able to drive change. And this is across the board. We certainly have to vote. We have to vote people in that know that and admit that racism is a problem in this country and will go through and do the work and take the steps to make the correction because what I see is continuous cycling. I'm hoping that that doesn't happen this time because as we look across all the protests, it's not just black people that are are protesting. We have a whole rainbow collection of generational um, diversity, uh, ethnic diversity. So I am hopeful that this time America steps up and we get to that next level. But we'll see. I have to say, even with the surveys that are being done today, there is deep skepticism that it will hit board level, that it will mean higher wages for the lowest earning workers in society even today. So the push has to continue. Desiree, talk to me about education, because every time I have this conversation, it goes back to the beginnings of education in some of the African-American communities, allowing bad teachers to be fired, hiring, hiring stronger teachers, just shoring up the education systems that give individuals a, a better and equal playing field, a fighting chance in terms of their beginnings. Do you agree with that? And do you think that those kind of changes and, and flexibility is required in order to level the playing field very early on before we even start talking about corporate response and and business response it has to begin earlier certainly it has to be begin earlier and i'm lucky i'm from new orleans and the the daughter of a teacher and my mother was also in education so it came early on here but many many young people don't have that situation there's so many social ills here in america that you may only have a one-parent household you may have a no-parent household. And so there's a combination of work that needs to get done in these communities to ensure not only that the the students have great teachers and that they're not necessarily entering into a prison. I'm startled as I enter, enter into some of the public schools where I've got to go through gun detectors and, you know, almost like a shakedown. It's like, how can I learn, you know, if I've got all of this atmosphere around us? So there has to be a really focused uh, project, attention, you know, across all of these um, uh, communities and making certain that, you know, the infrastructure is there, the, the access to, you know, great teachers is there, that, you know, you know, that, you know, people are in an environment where they can learn, they can get a hot meal. One of the considerations with, and worries were as, as schools closed down, kids would not be able to get, you know, hot meals during the right. day. 
the other big divide right now is just access to computers. You know, it's great if you're sitting home and you have access to a computer and a parent there to help you work through, through that. But what if you have no broadband in your com community, much less ownership of a computer that you can do um, online learning? We know that 20% of African-Americans in this country did not have jobs, or only 20% of African-Americans had jobs where they could work from home. What does that tell you? You know, they don't have the capacity to be able to, to work from home. They have service jobs. And so that means they have to be out. And so I really worry about what COVID has done in terms of taking us backwards instead of taking us forward. Yeah, and we saw that with the latest uh, job and unemployment statistics too. Desiree, I wanted to talk to you about your business because I know you take specific and make specific choices about your hiring, which is important too, but we will get you back to talk about your business too because there's so much to discuss here. Great to have you with us. And, um, yes, we'll talk there is. Soon. Thank you. Thank Desiree you so Rogers, much. Thank CEO you. of Black Opal Beauty. Great to see you and uh, we'll see you again soon. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move, but still to come, what's the likelihood of a second wave? We'll speak to a doctor who says mass protests and lockdown easing might not cause a new spike after all. Find out why next. Welcome back to First Move. There have been concerns that recent events could spark a second coronavirus wave in the United States, Europe and elsewhere. As economies reopen and restrictions ease, more and more people are mixing in shops, restaurants and outdoor spaces. Not to mention anti-racism protests around the world that have seen thousands of people marching in close proximity. This is all happening while the virus is still killing thousands of people, especially in Latin America. And we've seen an uptick in new infections here in the United States, although the scale so far not as dramatic as many have feared. So what's going on? I want to explore this with Dr. Raj Kelsey. He's an emergency medicine physician and joins us via Skype from Chicago. Raj, fantastic to have you on the show and thank you for making time. I know you're incredibly busy. What is going on? Because there is a lot of confusion, I think, out there about why we haven't seen a greater rise in cases. There's also been speculation that perhaps we're seeing a less virulent form of the virus now circulating. What's your take? Well, thanks, Julia. Thanks for having me on, and, and uh, thanks for helping me discuss this. You bring up excellent points. So America and, and scientists want to know, why aren't we seeing that huge uptick? Uh, you remember back, Julia, they were uh, forecasting mathematical models that put us at over a million deaths early on, and then we relegated it back to about 100,000 deaths, which is kind of where we're at right now, certainly over 100,000. Every death is important. Um, however, we have to take into account a couple variables, and these are unknown unknowns, uh, to coin the Rumsfeld term. One of the unknowns is, is this virus becoming less aggressive? When we look at epidemiology and different viruses that are very aggressive, for instance, like SARS-1 and MERS, they kill the host off very quickly, so quickly that the human being that had the infection simply couldn't get to the next human being to make that contact to make that next communication and cause viral spread. Could that be happening here? Could Italy and Wuhan, China, and then Spain by way of, uh, or, or New York by way of Spain, could they have seen the more aggressive strain causing a dramatic amount of cases and deaths? And by the time 
the rest of the country got it. And even now, we're just not seeing as many hospitalizations. We're not seeing as many deaths. Or is it that we're just getting better at treating these people? And mm. uh, two other things are going on. One is that uh, we're still underreporting the cases that do exist uh, just because of sheer volume. And we were just not built for this infrastructure to report all this data. And, and two, um, we're, we're testing a whole lot more. We have so many more tests. So when we see spike in cases, we just really don't know if it's because we got a spike in supplies to go test all the people out there. And, and the real data comes in the form of how many are hospitalized and how long are they hospitalized for? And of those hospitalized, how many die? It's, it's fascinating to hear you say, I mean, three months has been light years in terms of you guys on the front line knowing how best to handle the cases that you're dealing with. But what you're saying about what we've seen in the past with other coronaviruses and the fact that we do tend to see the dominant strain version becoming is a weaker one. And that's certainly what Italian doctors are saying and coming under fierce criticism, I think, through fears of complacency or that we get complacent. Could the weather be playing a role here, too? It's a it's an interesting idea, and it certainly plays a role in the four coronaviruses that America never talked about and never knew about, perhaps until this novel coronavirus came about. There were four coronaviruses that we always associated as doctors with the common cold. Our patients will come in with uh, sinus pressure, runny nose, sore throat, maybe a fever for a day. Anybody uh, with any type of medical problems would come in with those symptoms and say, Doc, I think, I think I'm sick. I think I have a sinus infection. I have a cold. And we knew in the back of our minds, statistically based on the season, uh, late fall, early winter, this is probably the cold virus. And those are four coronaviruses in addition to just a handful of other known viruses. And most of them are just not lethal. In fact, they're much less lethal, much less likely to kill you than even influenza, uh, such as H1N1 or the seasonal flu. Um, and so we know that those come back in cycles. And we know that certain spike proteins, certain proteins on this novel coronavirus are very similar to the family of the other four milder coronaviruses. And the question then becomes, if it's similar to a family of viruses, will it behave in the cyclic fashion that those other viruses do uh, compared to MERS and SARS, which essentially were eradicated once they disappeared off the planet. Yeah, it just reminds us that there's so much we don't know about what we're dealing with at this stage. And even for you guys that are right on the front lines, it's you're just trying to deal with what you get presented in that moment and we'll look back on it and be able to make conclusions and decisions about what we're seeing. Uh, Dr. Cassie, we will get you back because I have plenty more to discuss with you, but um, I have to wrap it up here. Great to have you with us, Dr. Raj Kelsey there. Thank, Thank you, you so Joe. much. Sure. All right, coming up on First Move, we're going to take a special look at inequality in the United States and what major companies are doing to tackle racial injustice. Stay with us. That's next. Welcome back to First Move with a reminder that you need to join us for a special edition of Quest Means Business tonight for a look at inequality in America. Zane Asher will be speaking to the head of one of America's oldest civil rights groups, the NAACP, as well as executives from UPS and Warner Media, our parent company, about the best ways to tackle racial injustice. And Zane joins us now to tell us more. Zane, can't wait to watch this. Tell us what's coming up. 
Yeah, we're going to be speaking about the experience of being black in corporate America. And Julia, when you look at the numbers, they are startling. There are only four black CEOs in the Fortune 500 companies. 3% of all senior executives in this country, in corporate America, are black. In fact, Dick Parsons, the former CEO of Time Warner, actually came out in, in an interview and discussed his experience of being black in corporate America, saying that as he was rising through the ranks, he always felt as though he had to be twice as good to get half as far. And that is certainly something that a lot of black people in this country can relate to. I think that it's important, though, that if corporate America is in part responsible for fueling inequality in this country, the question then becomes, what are they going to do about it? It's important to understand how we got here as a society, Julia, because back in the 1960s, white people were on average seven times richer than black people. And that gap, Julia, is actually only getting wider. Of course, there are systemic issues, including generational poverty after the slave trade, uh, also segregation as well. But you also have to look at um, the minimum wage. The minimum wage in this country federally has been stuck at $7.25 an hour for the past 10 years. And of course, black people are disproportionately employed in low wage jobs uh, and also access to education, uh, public school education, the quality of a public school in poor black neighborhoods is nowhere near, who are we kidding, nowhere near what it is in a rich white neighborhood. So these are all things that I'm going to be discussing. Now that the world spotlight is on racial injustice in this country, the question then becomes, how do we level the playing field? What are we going to do with the fact that the spotlight is on this issue right now? How can we use it to our advantage? Julia? Absolutely. Keep that spotlight on it as well. Zane Asher, can't wait. Sounds fantastic. It's such an important conversation. We look forward to right. that. Thank you for joining us. And coming up shortly, the brother of George Floyd will be testifying before lawmakers on Capitol Hill just one day after Floyd's funeral. Congress holding a hearing on police brutality and how to reform the justice system. That's up next and that's it for the show. I'm Julia Chatterley. You've been watching First Move. Stay safe. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.